First Peter chapter two. We're we're working our way through the first general epistle of the apostle Peter. Chapter two. Hear now the holy, inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings. As newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. If so be, ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. To whom coming, as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, Beseech you, as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that, whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors, as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, Be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it, if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. May the Lord grant his blessing to the reading and to the hearing of his most holy word. You may be seated. 
Well, as you'll recall from last week, First uh, Peter was written by the Apostle Peter to Christians who were under persecution, particularly in the region of Asia Minor. Um, you see that in that introduction in chapter 1. And, and today that would be generally that area of Turkey. If you look on it, boys and girls, if you know your geography, where Turkey is there, kind of settled in that area that kind of blends and merges between Europe and, and the Middle East and Asia. We're talking about that, that central place where the, the early church was really founded and expanding, and, and these Christians are under persecution, and they're, they're facing great difficulty. And so Peter writes, uh, as we saw last week, to encourage them, to cause them to hope in the Lord Jesus, to remind them of their, their new birth, that they are born again in Jesus Christ, but that Peter then connects that born-again state, that that new nature with the necessity of obedience, right? Be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. These are, these are themes that we find in the, in the book of 1 Peter. We also noted that he, he begins by calling these, stra- these Christians strangers, elect strangers. They were scattered through the region. They're, they're homeless ones, right? They're people that really have no place to, to hang their hat, really. They, they've been driven out from where they had their maybe their family heritage, and they're, they're really strangers in the region, in the earth. They're, they're not even treated as, as ones who are wanted by society. They're the cast-off ones, right? And so Peter is writing with a tender, a tender pen right, to these, these Christians. And we saw last time that, that Peter's encouragement is to hope in Christ. You've been purchased by him. And you've been purchased with something that is of not just great value, but infinitely great value the blood and body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're, in fact, kept by the power of God. And so then Peter moves from that, having been purchased, being kept, live a holy life. And, and that, that idea continues now into chapter 2. And, and Paul or Peter finished with some metaphors. Really, when we think about being born again, you, you kind of attach to that the idea of being born again children. Right? And so, so Peter really is talking to Adult believers and, and young believers as though we are born-again children, right? We're obedient children, Paul calls us in uh, verses 23 and 25 of chapter 1. And so now he takes those, those illustrations, those analogies, and he's flowing into chapter 2, uh, continuing those metaphors to describe what the holy life and the obedient born-again life of a Christian looks like. And within chapter 2, he's going to use a couple, some more metaphors. He, he starts out by using the metaphor of an infant desiring milk to describe growth and grace that comes with the love and desire for the Word of God. Then he's going to move into this, this concept of building up a spiritual house and a spiritual priesthood, com- comparing the Christian and the Christian church to this monument or memorial to Christ and His work. And then he's going to talk to us as pilgrims as those who are passing through this world, and how we ought to uh, obey, particularly in this chapter, with regard to civil rulers and, and slaves and servants to masters. So, we're going to divide chapter 2 into four, into four sections. Verses 1 through 3 is this metaphor about desiring the Word as newborn babies desire milk. Desiring the Word as newborn babies desire milk. <clears throat> the, the second section is verses 4 through 10. This is the, the metaphor of, 
of the spiritual house and priesthood that is built upon Christ. Peter's going to describe for us there. And then in verses 11 through 17, we have what described for us a pilgrim's obedience to civil rulers. A pilgrim's obedience to civil rulers. And then finally in verses 18 through 25, a pilgrim's obedience to his master. A pilgrim's obedience, or maybe a servant pilgrim. A pilgrim's servant's obedience to, his, obedience to his master. So let's look at verses 1 through 3. There is so much here. We could camp out for a few years and have you know, 150 sermons out of Peter and never, and never plunge the depth. So we're going to be broad brushing to a degree. But um, we won't hit everything. There perhaps will be questions afterward. We can discuss those. But uh, there is a lot here. If I miss something, feel free to ask me later. All right? Um, <clears throat> verses 1 through 3, desiring the word as newborn babes desire milk. Peter continues to describe the Christian in terms of his new birth. Right? This is that continuing metaphor. In particular, he's describing what has changed in your new birth. At once you were dead in sins. You've been reborn. You're alive in Christ. And, and in this section, Peter is describing how your desires have changed. Your desires have changed. Once we were filled, he says in, in verse 1 there, we lived our lives in malice. Boys and girls, that's having a, a desire to harm. A desire, a looking out to, how can I harm somebody? A, a harmful desire. He says we lived our lives in guile. That would be a desire to deceive, to, to trick somebody. To, uh, to get them to think something that, they, that, that you're deceiving them, to trick them into thinking something, perhaps. He says, we were hypocrites, filled with envy. What is that? Envy. Desiring the blessing that other people's have, people have for yourself and really hating them in it. Um, the things mentioned here in verse 1 are all motivated by a sinful and selfish desire. But now you, having been made alive, having been born again... Now, as obedient children, what? Our desires are different. We don't desire those things anymore. In fact, in verse 3, we have, we have tasted the sweet grace of Christ, and so now what? We desire that. We've tasted that. And then we want more of it. And so Peter says, as born-again Christians, set your new desire upon the Word of God. Set it upon Christ and upon His Word. And, he, and boys and girls, isn't this just a wonderful, easy-to-understand uh, illustration? Desire the Word like a baby wants his mama's milk. Right? You see those babies. They start to cry because they're hungry. And there's nothing that they want more than that sweet, warm milk. Right? They're hungry. And they need it to grow. Right? Peter says it's not just for satisfying a... Uh, uh, a taste, there's a function involved in this desire. It's a function to grow. Babies don't grow without milk. Christians don't grow without the Word. And the question is, do we desire that Word? What does your desire look like? Um, you know, if, if it, would be, it would be silly for us to think that a mom would look at her baby and say, why do you desire to watch TV instead of drink my milk? Why do you desire to do all these other things, to fill up your time? To, to, why, did, why would you not desire my milk? You desire to fill it with something else. Babies don't do that. <laughs> There's no concept of that within a, within a baby, right? They want the milk. What do we fill up? 
What, what, how do we fulfill and satisfy our desires with things other than the Word of God? This is, this is Peter's challenge to us. Now, you might say, some people have said, well, what Peter's saying here then, too, is that we need to just stay focused on the simple things in the Word. The milk, the simple things. And, and that would be in contradiction to where we're said to move from milk to meat. So is, is Peter saying something different? than the other apostles or the rest of the scriptures? No, no, no. Not at all. But Peter, Peter's not describing here that we should just stick with the simple things of the word. He's rather describing the intensity which with, with which we should desire the word. Whether it's milk or whether you're moving on to meat, desire it all. Just like a baby desires the mother's milk. It's not, this is not a command or even a reason for us to stop plunging the depths of the scriptures. It's an analogy designed to teach desire. Okay, so then moving to the second section, verses 4 through 10, we see uh, Peter talking about the spiritual house and a spiritual priesthood founded upon Christ. This is the second analogy. Peter shows in this analogy the continuity, the continuation, the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament, doesn't he? He's describing us in terms of an Old Testament concept of a memorial, of a building, of a tabernacle, of a temple, and of a priesthood. He's, he's drawing out, he's quoting here from the book of Psalms, from the book of Isaiah. Even if you remember, uh, some of those, those quotes here come from Hosea. People who didn't have mercy, but have now found mercy. That's Hosea there. Peter says we have been redeemed, we've been saved, we've been made alive, so that we might be a living public testimony of the power and mercy and grace of God. If you look at verse 4, or excuse me, 5, we see that we've been made holy in order that we might offer ourselves and our worship as spiritual sacrifices to God. Within all of the apostles, there's always a movement from you are saved to why you're saved. You've been saved for a purpose. And remember, he said in chapter 1, be holy. Well, this is what it's going to look like. As the priests offered those sacrifices in the Old Testament, we bear testimony in offering ourselves up to Him of the work of Christ. We have been set apart by Christ, just as those priests were set apart to, to minister on behalf of the people before God. We are set apart to minister directly to Christ, to offer those things to God which are pleasing to Him, which are accepted by Him through Christ Jesus. In verse 9, you see that we have been redeemed to be a special chosen people. Boys and girls, that when it says that we're, we're called a, per, a peculiar people, it doesn't mean weird, it doesn't mean odd, although we may be weird, we may be a little odd. What that means here is that we have been bought as a special possession. We have been purchased as a special possession of God. And not just for any old reason, not to be put up on a shelf, and just set off to the side that, that we've been bought for a purpose, for a function, for a goal, for a duty, for a work, with a purpose. That we would be a people that would bear a public testimony to the salvation and power of God. Where did those priests in the Old Testament minister? There was only one time a year that they went and hid. They went inside that Holy of Holies. But every day they're ministering out in the courtyard. In the public, in the open view, 
this, what, what Peter's describing is a public sacrifice, a public ministry, that we are, we are laid out before the world on display as a testimony to the power and mercy and grace of Christ. In verse 10, we see that our regeneration, our new birth, bears that public testimony to the world of mercy, the mercy that we have received from God in Christ. It's very important to understand this concept of it being public, right? The second piece of this that, that, Paul, that Peter talks about is this, this stone, this building uh, analogy on the stone, the foundation of Christ. He's describing the church, the, the, the visible Christian church being built up upon the chief cornerstone as if we were a, a memorial, perhaps a monument, a building that stands within the public space as a testimony to the fact that Christ is here. Right? If you think back, you should draw your mind back to perhaps Joshua chapter 4 when the, the children of Israel crossed the Jordan River. They moved into the promised land. And what did the Lord do? He, he caused the river to stop and the people went through on dry land. When the priests came up out of the river, the waters came through again. And immediately after they come through the river, what do they do? They choose out 12 men, one from each tribe, and they go find a big rock from each tribe and they stack them up. Stones stacked up, piled high, 12 of them. Why? As a testimony that every time someone walked by those pile of stones, they would say, the Lord brought us through to the promised land. This is that same type of picture, except it's applied not to dead rock, but to living, breathing, conscionable people. Living stones. Lively stones. This is a memorial that lives that breathes, that testifies, both with actions and words, to what? Christ is here. Christ is here. And this is a, a, a testimony, a memorial, a house that's built on a foundation, a sure foundation. That foundation is not, is not dead either, is it? We come to the lively, living Christ, who is made the chief stone of the corner. Boys and girls, what that's describing is, is in this concept of constructing a house or perhaps in the old days constructing, you know, like the temple or some large stone structure, that first stone that they set is the one that establishes all the other stones. How they'll be ordered, how they'll be laid out. And if a stone doesn't match the chief cornerstone, it's out of place. Right? And so Christ is the chief cornerstone upon which all other stones are founded. But then we add to that as well that not, it's not just Christ's work as our mediator and as our redeemer, but his word also is that foundation. We're told in, in the scriptures that the apostles and the prophets along with Christ are the foundation. These things are, 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 are which we are built upon. And so you can see in Peter's mind how he connects this building up of a spiritual house with the desiring for the word. Right? These things go together that those who are fit into the house, fit into the memorial to Jesus Christ, desire Him and His Word. And this is how we grow. The other thing to consider in this is that these stones are laid upon each other. 
If you think about that, that memorial that was laid up in Joshua chapter 4, the stones are stacked upon each other. They're not independent of each other. They were standing one upon the next upon the next. If the stone below it was weak or out of place, the ones above it would fall. Brothers and sisters, what this also is describing for us is the continuity in the church. We stand upon the shoulders of those who have gone before us. We are part of a house that is being built up, right? It, it wasn't just built and set aside. It's in the process of being built up. So the things that we build today have an effect on what comes tomorrow. We must build well. We must make sure that our stone matches the chief cornerstone. Or we're building wrong. We're building improperly. We're building foolishly. Then Peter moves into a description more of some particular ways that this obedience works itself out, that this holy living, that this memorial to Christ works itself out in the world. We said it's public, and so he's going to go and start talking about the way that our testimony is public. And he's, he's talking specifically to people who are struggling. Uh, you know, if you look at, at that time, who was, who was bringing the persecution against the church? It was primarily the civil rulers in one way or another, whether they were influenced by the Judaizers or, or not. It's the Roman magistrates that in particular are bringing difficulty to the church. And so where does Peter go? Logically, he's, he's thinking about these people particularly, and so he says, your testimony needs to be public as you relate to your civil rulers. So in verses 11 through 17, he's going to talk about what a pilgrim's obedience looks like to a civil ruler. It's important, boys and girls, to think about what a pilgrim is. Right? Why would Peter describe us as pilgrims? What is a pilgrim? They're not just people with hats with buckles on them, right? They came over on the Mayflower. No, pilgrims are... Why do we call them pilgrims? We call them pilgrims because they, they had left England in, the, in terms of the context of the American pilgrims, right? The, the Mayflower pilgrims. They left England. They went to Holland. They found no home there and they moved to the New World. They were passing through. That's what pilgrims are. They're people that are passing through. And Peter says, we are pilgrims. What are we passing through? We're passing through this world. As born-again Christians, we are not born into into, uh, a citizenship in this world. We don't have our citizenship here. We are citizens of heaven. We're citizens of heaven. We're passing through this world on our way to a better place. And so we ought to consider ourselves not as worldlings, but as heavenly citizens. As the ones who, who are looking forward to, in that great picture that John Bunyan gave us, that celestial city. Right? We're passing through. The world is filled with sin and temptations, Peter tells us, and they, these war against our soul. But since we are not of this world, since this world is not our home, we don't partake of those temptations. They're not us. They're not the things that we desire. They're not the things that we want. They, they tempt us, but we stay away from them. We say we are Christians, so we must live that way. Right? Instead of participating in the sin of this world, instead of living as hypocrites, instead of 
of having malice and envy and all those things. We live honestly. We live an honest, holy life in front of the Gentiles, in front of the heathen, so that they see us and they say, yes, his life matches his profession. He says he's a Christian. He lives like he's a Christian. This is the public testimony of the church and of the the Christian life. So, Peter moves to talk about obedience to the civil magistrate. This is a tender subject, as we said. And it's even tender in our day, as our civil rulers become more and more corrupt. There's much that we could say from this. But, uh, in summary, Peter says that a Christian's obedience to the civil authorities silences the accusations of the foolish world in verse 15. In verse 16, he tells us that when we use our Christ-given liberty to serve God in obeying rulers, we bear good testimony to Christ. But what about that statement in verse 13? Right? This is, this is really where the rubber meets the road. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake whether it be to the king as supreme, or then he says unto rule, governors as unto them who are sent, and so on. Are we really supposed to submit ourselves to every ordinance? Many have pressed that. You know, there's been a lot of confusion, even in the course of the pandemic and the, the lockdowns and the, the overreach of government. Yeah, I'm tipping my hand. The overreach of government into the church's affairs. People went to First Peter to chapter 13 and said, we must obey, we must obey. How are we supposed to understand this? The Greek prepositional phrase, yep, sorry boys and girls, grammar. There's a prepositional phrase here at the end of that verse, and the Greek prepositional phrase is translated, for the Lord's sake, at the end of the statement, means, in the Greek, where it says, for the Lord's sake, you could, you could read that, by the Lord. Because of the Lord, through the Lord. Submit to every ordinance by the Lord, through the Lord, because of the Lord. Now let me ask you a question. Is it possible to obey a sinful command through the Lord? Is it possible, or does it make sense to submit to every sinful command because of the Lord? No, that's, that's contradictory. When you see these kind of statements in the Scripture, there's always this attachment to needing to make a decision about what is holy, what is righteous, what is good in the civil command. The preposition modifies the word every so that it excludes the sinful commandments of the magistrate. It excludes the sinful commandments. In other words, we obey everything that we can. And we don't obey the things that a Christian cannot. Okay? Now, when Peter describes this, the testimony of the Christian life is that they are trying to obey everything they can from a heart of respect and honor. See, Christians are always the best citizens. Because, in verse 17, fearing God is attached to honoring the king. We honor the king because we fear God. Now you say, well, what about all those Christians that have disobeyed over the the course of the centuries? Even in civil disobedience, a Christian, because he fears God, has an obligation to honor the king. We do not storm capital buildings without just cause, without the right way, without proper obedience to Christ. We are not anarchists. 
We are not insurrectionists. The Bible gives us a way to disobey. In a way that can honor the king. In fact, if you look at the, the, the true Christian motives and the way when people have rightly taken up civil disobedience, it's always been with the intention to help the king see what's right. You're acting the fool, O king. You're God's servant for good and you're disobeying him. Please see what's right. right? This is the heart. And so that's why Peter connects fearing God, honoring the king. And notice that if you don't honor the king, you don't fear God. So the question here is in a day like ours, when our hearts are very dark towards our king, towards our civil magistrate, how are we honoring? How are we honoring that civil magistrate? And if we, do, if we struggle with that, we must work towards it in the fear of God. The fear of God demands that we must honor the king, and sometimes we must obey, right? We fear God rather than men. But even when we disobey, we do it honorably before God. <clears throat> he, fought, he closes out the chapter then in moving to a pilgrim's obedience to masters in verses 18 to 25. And really, this is with regard to the obedience of slaves to masters. Let's not sugarcoat it. People, because there's, there's a difficulty in our day and age with the concept of slavery in the Bible, people want to say, well, Peter's describing only some sort of indentured servanthood here, of, you know, even a willing, um, a willingness to go into slavery. That's not, that's, Paul doesn't put any of those modifiers on here. He's describing and talking about Roman slavery. A very difficult and hard state to be in. And yet, he says that a slave within the house of a even wicked master, a froward master, can bear a testimony to Christ through obedience. Peter says, offer obedience unto masters, even the wicked one. It's possible, he says, that a Christian slave could have been under the rule of a wicked master. And yet there is no talk about running away. There's no talk about rebellion. There's no talk about your personal comfort. Paul instead commands obedience. He command, excuse me, Peter commands obedience. The encouragement of this passage is that suffering for righteousness' sake, whether you are in an easy situation or, a, or the most difficult situation, is a public testimony to Christ. See, this is where that connects to those analogies before. We must commit ourselves to Christ in the midst of affliction rather than striking out in anger and having a rebellious spirit focusing on myself. Why is this happening to me? Oh, woe is me. How can I possibly be in this situation? How must I get out of it? Peter directs us to think about Christ. What did Christ do? He suffered on our behalf. And, and this is the testimony. This is the witness. This is the example that he leaves us that when he was reviled, he reviled not again. He did not throw off the, the authority of Pontius Pilate. He didn't call in the, the armies of heaven, but he submitted to that suffering. And he did so in a, godly, in a godly sort of way that bore testimony to everyone around that when he died on that cross, they said, surely this is the Son of God. Finally, in verse 25, Peter reminds us, that those slaves have a responsibility to obey the earthly masters, even the wicked ones. Jesus Christ is the ultimate shepherd and bishop. And when we say bishop there, that word is overseer. He's the shepherd and overseer of our souls. That 
when we suffer, we know that Christ, as our shepherd, as our overseer, takes care of us. He knows. We may look to him for strength. But this also means that even a slave could disobey an unlawful command. Because Jesus Christ is the shepherd of their soul, not their master. There is a higher authority. You know, it might mean that you resist unto death. A slave could resist something that would be a wicked command and might get beaten to death. That would be a godly death. That would be a public testimony to obedience to Christ. We must be willing to submit to our shepherd, our bishop, the overseer of our souls, rather than submit to sin, even in those worst of situations. So the question then that that cries off the pages to us is, are we suffering for conscience sake? Or are we compromising our conscience for the sake of minimizing suffering? Very difficult question. But the Apostle Peter here encourages us to remember, going back to chapter 1, be holy. There is no no suffering that that occurs, that you endure, that that is not worth it. Because Christ has gone before us. And the command, the reason that you're saved and born again is to be holy. Therefore, don't compromise your conscience. Don't compromise your witness. Bear that public testimony as a royal priesthood, as those purchased by Christ who have an inheritance set in heaven. So, when we face discouragements, the book of 1 Peter would always remind us that what? There is an inheritance in heaven waiting waiting for us that we look forward with that great word, that wonderful Christian word, godly hope in hope. Amen.